In this episode of The Invisible Vote, I'll be speaking with three separate individuals, Serge, King Joshua, and Kwa, who come together for the first time to engage in a critical discussion about voting inequalities in today's society. We will take a deep dive into the importance of equality, community, and civic engagement. But more importantly, critical conversations will be shared by three strangers who come together and unite to give opinions and views on voting that might be similar to yours. So welcome to what we call the invisible vote. Right? When they condemn all the looting and the rioting and the... Well, what was the Boston Tea Party? That wasn't your tea. You didn't own that tea. You stole the identity of indigenous people, climbed aboard a boat, so you're trespassing, that's breaking and entering, <laughs> and then you threw it into the water, into the Boston Harbor, so you stole it, essentially rendering millions of dollars, probably, millions of dollars worth of tea worthless, gone. Hi everyone, my name is King Joshua. I use they, them, gender pronouns, uh, 32. I'm fighting the government in court uh, with several lawsuits, so there's that. Hi everyone, my name is Serge. I'm 20, soon to be 21. I'm from Westchester, New York. So my name is Kwanisha Descent. Everything I do creative, I go by Kwa. It's my branding name. Spelled with a K, K-W-A, guys. How excited are you to vote on November 3rd? I am not excited at all. Um, yeah, actually, I have, I have no plans to like in, uh, vote or engage with voting. Mm, why is that? For like a multitude of reasons, um, it just simply feels wrong like the very essence that I like define myself as like a black man or like a working revolutionary and someone who's really doing a lot to try to enhance and grow their like political education, like mm-hmm. playing into this hand of like the lesser two evils or voting for what are essentially two white supremacists. Like I just, that'd be a compromise to my spirit that I'm not willing to make. Well, mm. so, What do you think about yeah. that King? I am like completely aligned with everything <laughs> Uh, I'm finding it difficult to really vote. And like you said, you know, being a black person, uh, especially a black gender non-conforming person, you know, feeling like you have to choose the lesser of two evils, you know, these essentially these two old white guys bickering on TV. Mm. It's, it's like, let me be your massa. Mm. <laughs> you know? <laughs> And it's just it's like, well, I don't want one. So, right, right, right. I definitely feel the same way. Um, the My exact words is, it's like, do you pick an abuser or a rapist? That's kind of how I look at it. Like two traumatizing, wow. you know, characters where they are both abusive, you know, and it's a very disturbing decision for me as well, guys. I'm so uneasy about it for so many reasons. I'm uneasy to do it and I'm uneasy about not doing it, you know? Mm. It's like, if I don't do it, then I suffer the consequences either way. Like, I'm the type of person, I want to go by way of my own fate. 
you know, if I'm going to pick something and have to endure the consequences for it, I want it to be based on a decision that I made and not a choice that someone made for me. So it kind of, it kind of puts me, you know, at odds with myself even. And it's like, I feel like it's the bottom of the barrel of the picking. It's like, no one else wants to be the president in the whole world. Nobody. You all saw the debate tonight. Um, but, you know, Trump was asked a specific question last night to um, condemn white supremacy. I would love that. I would love you guys take on what transpired. Stand back and stand by. <laughs> <laughs> it sounded like what, what came to mind for me is like he sounded like he was boarding an airplane. It's like, OK, white supremacists, stand back and stand by. <laughs> You'll get your turn. <laughs> you know? He didn't obviously want to upset his mm. base, but it just it sounds like the same thing we've been hearing for five years since he entered the race in, I think, 2015. And I know people like to say, you know, men lie, women lie, people lie, but numbers don't. The numbers are that since he entered the race, the hate crime statistics have gone up every year steadily, whether it's anti-Semitic or specifically regarding black people, they've only increased. So it just seemed like he was saying, stand by, look, these debates will be over, (laughs) but when I win, it's back to business. Like King said, like, you know, numbers have risen, like hate crimes, everything has risen. It's like everything is out of control. Not that it was that much in control before. I think it was just more suppressed a little more before. Now people are unapologetic about their hatred. You know, people feel entitled to be able to hate in that capacity. And they've been feeling entitled for however many years, you know, but now it's like in your face entitlement. So now you got us walking around with these t-shirts on saying, we are not our ancestors. We'll knock your head off, you know, Mm. because we have to make a stance for who we are. It's like, you know, we're we're not going to sit back and just continue to take that. And so I agree. I agree with everything King just said. And it's just, it's, it's ridiculous. You know, it really is. And it's, it's tiring. And like he said, it's kind of like what he did. Like, oh, you know, everybody just stand by. This will all be over soon, and then we'll get back to the agenda. King, you were into activism, and some of your family are Republican. Are you at odds with your family as far as your political position? Not just even with your political position, but even your position as far as, like, your gender. You know, has that come at odds with your family as far as, like, how is that tied into your political views yeah um it's interesting you know to say the very least it's interesting i have you know two vastly different sides of my family my parents divorced you know unfortunately i'm not close with you know my father's side but from what i remember in my childhood a lot of and this is you know well before trump and before Jay-Z and Young Jeezy had a song called Black Republican mm-hmm. years ago, there was the idea that, you know, it was like this off-brand thing to do. Not off-brand, but like... It's taboo. Sort of, yeah, yeah, it was like a Black Republican. Black, yeah, black, exactly. You know what I mean? And it was like this, you know, the, the party that freed the slaves. So I had a lot of, I think, my father's side of the family, both Democrats, but I would hear them talk about, you know, being Republican. Um, but specifically, my 
you know, mother's side, you know, my grandmother's white and Republican and voted for Trump. And it has definitely been an interesting conversation. I don't talk to them a lot. So I, mm. I can't even say, you know, currently that it's interesting conversations. But when he was running for the first time and things, it, it was, you know, very, I think, tense because she's married to a Democrat, you know, who's just black. And, you know, yes, uh, unfortunately, I think gender identity and even sexual orientation has you know, played a role in, you know, that relationship. You know, I remember years ago, you know, my mom would come to me, you know, because I used to straighten my hair and wear it in an updo. And she's like, some of my family members think you're gay. You know, it was like this sort of like complaining to me, you know, as if like I should, you know, and I remember my aunt wanting me to change my hair. Mm. Like, why is this about you? Like, what, mm. you know, so it's an interesting, you know, dynamic when you're dealing with, I think, gender identity and sexual orientation. And, you know, as a black person, especially black people statistically are the most religious group in the United States. But even if you go in a little bit further into my family's history, my grandfather was a union organizer. And when Martin Luther King would come to New Jersey and New York, mm -hmm. he was a bodyguard for Martin Luther King. And, you know, cause I was born in New Jersey mm -hmm. and my mother would tell me these stories like, yeah, I remember being a little girl and, you know, after Martin died, you know, when my grandfather saw Coretta, she would just hold him and hug him and talk to him. And, you know, just being this, you know, powerful moment in a crowd of people, her talking to my grandfather was something that stuck out to me. Mm. But now to see that and my grandfather's son being my uncle, I remember I had a conversation with him years ago, you know, and it was really tense and, and got to an aggressive point. And I said, you know, I'd rather die on my feet than live on my knees. Mm. And he sort of at the time had this philosophy in life where, well, you have to be subservient. And it was just like, you know, well, we've seen what happened to our leaders. They all killed. And now, you know, we just have to go along to get along. And mm -hmm. I'm the complete opposite. I, you know, so... I have tried to take that role of being involved with nonprofit organizations that are helping black and Latinx, you know, transgender or gender nonconforming persons or the LGBTQ community. So it's it's a very interesting dynamic when you live at that intersection of mm -hmm. gender identity and sexual orientation and race it becomes a whole nother ball game than just being black. You, you're sort of, you know, pushed to the back like uh, Bayard Rustin. Bayard Rustin was a speechwriter uh, for Martin Luther King and was actually one of the organizers of the March on Washington, but they didn't want him to speak because he was gay. It's interesting intersectionality to say the least. Yeah. have 
a high and low to how I go about, you know, raising my kids and what I look for and what I offer them from my own personal experiences. So I'm originally from New Orleans, born and raised there. And I experienced a lot of racism growing up. Um, I lived in what was majority black community, but I went to Caucasian schools growing up. Um, and so my elementary school, I was like one of the only black kids. My middle school, I was like one of the first black kids in that middle school at the time. Um, and so I endured a lot of it, you know, and my mom is very fair in complexion. And so is my grandmother. And our family is really mixed. We are really a melting pot of gumbo where we have Caucasian blonde hair, blue eyed cousins, you know, aunties and uncles. And then we have some people who are really, really rich in melanin that have blue eyes as well that are still, you know, blood relatives to me. And so I've always seen a variety of people around me. But when I have to face adversity, you know, growing up, my mom just always made it a point to tell me, you know, you never charge many people for the acts of few and just always be mindful of that, you know. Right. Um, and so really quickly, I'll touch on um, when I did. Some of my closest friends were Caucasian and their family were clan members. Uh, so we could be friends in school, but when it was time to leave school, I couldn't be seen walking with them. We couldn't cross the street together. Like it was like our friendship started and stopped at school. Now mm. in my adult life, these uh, friends that I had, we are still friends till this day. Even more recently with all the riots, my best friend, my absolute best friend is Caucasian. She lives back home in New Orleans and because she was on our side of things, because she, you know, she called, we called each other sisters because we grew up since little kids together. Her brother and her family kind of started to like disown her because she kind of had the same stance that I had, you know, or that she was siding with me. They kind of felt like, oh, you're with them. You're not with us. And so it's still happening. And it was really heartbreaking for us. It's like, wow, we've come this far. We thought we got to kind of got over the hump. And now we're right back here trying to prove why love shouldn't, you know, look a certain way or why, you know, friendship shouldn't be based on these things. And, and piggybacking off of that, with raising my kids, my older son, he has a Caucasian girlfriend who I love dearly, right? So when all the riots and everything was happening and with voting and everything coming up, conversations in my home got really thick, got really personal, got really emotional. There was a time at my kitchen table, like my son made a comment his girlfriend was here because, you know, I look at her like a daughter. So she comes here whenever she wants. She's free to roam. And I, re I was like, listen, guys, we need to really sit down and read this Willie Lynch letter. You know, and we read it for breakfast, like verbatim. We broke down every sentence. We read everything. And I had to explain to them, you know, I love you guys in here. And I know you guys love each other, but the world doesn't love you like that. You know, and that's a hard conversation to have because they're not going to be here in my home forever or even right. in this state. You know, Poconos, right? Which is a Trump state. So, you know, I have to have those conversations with my son, even with the riots and everything. His girlfriend at one point was like, oh, you know, we need to stand up for this. We need to go. And I was so afraid. And I said to her, listen, honey, you and my son, you have two different types of privilege. You are white. You can go to these riots. You can go to these protests and you might be just fine. But my son cannot accommodate or accompany you to these events. And it doesn't make him any less black because I want to keep him safe, mm. you know? Him going, and I'm very straightforward, like him going with you to these events puts a target on his back. And that is not something that I want him to willingly walk into. 
Now, it's not something I could protect them from always, but, you know, those conversations have to be had a little sooner with everything that's going on. Like, you know, I want him to be free to love who he wants, you know, but I also want him to know the consequences that come with that when you're out in the world and how when you make those decisions to love the person you love, you have to make a decision to be willing to face the consequence that comes with that as well. And that's that's heartbreaking. You know, it's heartbreaking to see my kids, you know, feel so comfortable in being themselves in the house. But when we're outside, they're not sure of what the looks are. Now everybody's wearing a mask. So now you can really see the person's eyes. You really know if a person's mm. looking at you funny or they're not, you can't see the, their mouth, you know? So the energy is what's telling everything. Yeah, so now bringing us up to speed, you know, talking about um, voting thing, I um, am very involved in my kid's life and I do, I take them on every journey with me. You know, every journey I take them with me. And so voting is something we talk about, you know, even before voting, selective service. A lot of young black men don't know that they need to register for selective service. Like, you know, they don't even know what that is. So we have to talk about that and why you need to do it and how do you go about it. And so even with voting, I want my kids to be able to make an educated decision. Like Mm. yourself, Anthony, I was born into a Democrat, right? But I want my kids to be able to do research and do what feels comfortable for them. You know, and I, and I hate to piggyback off religion, but like King said, you know, we're one of the most religious races. You're born into Christianity. And the reason that most people kind of stay in that area is because they dare not venture off to find out something different. They just kind of go along to get along and just kind of go with the flow. This is what I was told. And, you know, I have this saying, and I hope it doesn't offend anyone. We have this saying that, you know, um, and one of my girlfriend's sons actually uh, said it, which was so interesting because he's young. He's like 11 or 12. Uh, maybe he just turned 13. Um, but we agree that a tradition is is more often than not peer pressure from dead people. Right. So you have these traditions and they're passed on generation, generation, generation. And sometimes you feel locked <laughs> into having to do that because someone did that came before you. And that's not what you have to Amen. do. Amen. You know, that's not what you have to do. It is peer pressure from dead people. And you can choose to live your life however you so choose. Everyone has one life to live and you don't get to borrow others. You have Mm -hmm. to do what's best for you and what you do necessary for your life. So I encourage my children to learn as much as possible, but make educated decisions if they venture off. Know that you're making a decision that you were conscious of. You know, don't just go be a follower like, oh, this sounds good. This is the trend. I'm going to go and do this because the consequences are real. You know, the people you're following may not be, but the consequences to your decisions are very real. Serge, man, just to piggyback off of what Kwai was talking about, having those conversations with her kids. I wonder if you had those conversations with your parents around protesting, going out, safety, police. And if you have had those conversations, could you walk us through what that what that was like? Uh, it's interesting, though. Like, as a kid, like, um, hearing cause perspective, like, I, I didn't really have those conversations with my parents so much. Like, there are definitely times where it came up, but um, they were coming up from a position of, like, they just wanted, like, for me to have, like, a normal childhood. Like, I, I yeah, went to school out of district to, like, a primarily white school. I was like very affluent, very upper middle class. There was a time after like having experienced that where I like 
didn't really understand why we didn't have those conversations. But like now being older, like I really like appreciate like what they did and just like letting me and like allowing me to have like a normal childhood without having like the constant like stress of um, or, like being like hyperly aware of race outside right. of like what I already experienced. Yeah, where like I can just kind of like do stupid shit with my friends without like having to necessarily like there, there's an instance that I always remember. Um, like I had gone to the city with a couple of my friends and like <laughs> we'd ran out of money. So we'd like hop the turnstile. Like I came back and told my mom about it. And she like, she started like freaking out. Cause like in her, like for her in that instance, it was like, I'm like doing something illegal. Like had I been like caught, like the punishment I would have received would have been much different. But like, but also recognizing like up until the point, like the reason I didn't think about that was cause like she had helped create an environment where I can just kind of be in the moment and enjoy like the moment with my friends without necessarily having to worry about like these external consequences. So like, yeah, there's a weird kind of balance there where I, I gain like this, this freedom and like joy of just like living an experience, but also like not really being aware of like myself and like myself racially. But yeah, it's like, it's an, it's an impossible balance to make. And like, I, I can't even like imagine like the difficulty of like being a parent and having to like choose how to interact or like gauge with like race talks with your children. I think you brought up something that's very interesting because of the environment you came up in and you said you didn't really have to, you know, it was almost like a good thing almost, you know, that you didn't have to experience uh, some of those things where you were unaware, basically. So when did awareness start to kick in for you that, oh, snap, I'm different? And when did it really, because I know you, you say you started to realize your mother was got really more upset and stuff like that. But for you personally, when did you start to realize, oh, snap, like this is, we are not the same? Yeah, yeah. Um, great question. Um, and I actually have like a very specific answer to that. I mean, like there are always like hints of it when I was a kid. Like I was very aware that I was black and like there was that difference. Like it wasn't just like a total ignorance, um, but I just didn't know like the full like scope of what that really entailed. But it wasn't until like I, I'd left uh, high school and like left that school district and went to like my local community college, which like much more diverse and like a lot more like black and brown faces that I like really just like became aware. It's like it was a weird moment where I was just <laughs> randomly on Tinder, just kind of swiping through and not, like seeing in Westchester, it's like a lot of white people. And then something just something just clicked, something just connected where I was like, oh, like a lot of these people I'm swiping on are just not going to swipe back on me. And like mm. from that, just like this kind of bubble popped and I realized I just became much more aware. And so do you feel like, you know, because you grew up in a different environment that politically you might have agreed with some of the ideals that being in an all white neighborhood would promote versus being. Oh, in- absolutely. Yeah. So um, were there some opinions that you did hold previously that now you're like, wait, I completely disagree with what I was thinking before. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, There was like large internalization of whiteness and like white supremacy. And just realizing like, it was more so like coming from like an affluent town that like my, like they're like, the views are kind of more conservative in the sense like they're wanting to like protect their money and protect their wealth. So I, I never, yeah, I didn't come to that understanding of like an intersectionality of like capitalism and understanding like capitalism as like a, fundamental like function to a lot of these problems that we're facing so like yeah that definitely changed like my like views on like wealth and like I remember in school I had to do like uh, an assignment on like minimum wage like making an argument for or against um yeah and like at that time like my views were more like against like raising the minimum wage but now like 
fully understanding like what labor means and like in this capitalist society and like how it exploits black people and like and many different persons, not just like exclusively black people. <laughs> I've really like moved past that point of like trying to harbor and like hold my wealth. Um, okay. I, yeah, I'm totally against having wealth. Why do you believe in local voting so much? Like, why do you believe that's so important for people of color to focus on local elections more so than something more national? Um, I believe that, you know, we should focus on more local elections because it's tangible to us. I hate to say this, but we as a people, uh, and going back to as religious as we may be, where we walk by faith and not by sight, the reality is when it's tangible for us, we are more involved. You know, we can put our hands on it and you can see change. So when you're in your local elections, because in my my job, my nine and five, um, I work with a lot of people who are local council people, you know, um, of different parts of New Jersey. And so I've even been able to like work those local elections and stuff like that, you know, on election day and do tallying up all the numbers and stuff like that. When you do that, you know, and you feel like that person is, hey, like, I'll give you a brief example, right? I used to live in East Orange and it snowed really bad. I was like snowed into my house and the snow plow, because I lived on a dead end block, didn't come down because if it had pushed all the snow down, it still would have ended up in front of my house. I was like the second to last house at the dead end. It was nowhere for the snow to go, right? And so the snow plow didn't even come down. But because of being involved with like our local elections, I was able to pick up the phone and call my local council person and say, hey, you know, this street didn't get plowed and people have to go to work. You know, it's been however many days and they were able to get somebody out there right away and say, you know what, because I represent this town or this city, it is my due diligence to ensure that the people here are okay and have what they need to function every day. I think that that's important because that rebuilds, you know, a confidence in your vote. So it's like you start here. Um, also, what I want to piggyback off of for this this topic is I want to shine, maybe not piggyback, but shine light on the fact of how many years does the average person miss out on being a part of voting? Because you really don't realize how it affects you until you're really in society, right? So we graduate from high school, you become 18, maybe five or six years into your adulthood, you're still not thinking about voting. You're just thinking about, oh, I'm free. I don't have to listen to anybody, you know, and voting comes and goes and people are like, oh, did you vote? I got my sticker. I got a sticker. And it still doesn't prompt you enough to say, I want a sticker. You really don't take the time to figure out what's going on until you start to realize how it's affecting you. Is it affecting your money? Is it affecting your overhead? How is it affecting your family? Once your eyes are open and you realize, wow, like, hold on, I really could be a part of a difference that this makes to my family. I think when that happens, then people want to be a part of it. You want to be more involved, mm. you know, but when you're involved on a local level. So much in your community can be different when everybody takes part. You know, that's why you see some towns that are cleaner than others. You know, some towns are a little run down. It depends on how involved the people in the community are. You know, I'm not sure that I believe that voting on any level is going to bring about the change we want to see right we you know that that was a slogan i think of obama's 08 campaign you know change you can believe in okay 
he came, his administration came eight years and left, and we're still talking about the same issues. And so on a local level, you know, I don't necessarily believe that voting is going to do, you know, much difference in our lives, right? Uh, for example, I recently, earlier this year, in February, I went to Albany in protest, uh, Albany, New York, uh, which is the state capital, to protest against Governor Cuomo cutting over $2 billion to the Medicaid budget. This is in February, at the beginning of a pandemic. He cut our healthcare coverage for New York State, for the entire state, by over $2 billion. So, uh, you know, that was a local process. He's a governor, uh, uh, excuse me, a Democratic governor, right? We have a Democratic mayor in New York City, yet we're still dealing with problematic issues. Before him was a Republican mayor where stop and frisk was allowed to flourish and grow, where the police were allowed to stop and frisk black people. And the statistics were horrible, were horrible, where they weren't finding any drugs. They really weren't finding any guns. And, you know, they had to, you know, fight it off in the courts to show that, you know, this, hey, this is unconstitutional. This is illegal. I think we have uh, the Brooklyn Borough president is a black gentleman he talks, I literally heard him say on the news one evening, he's like, yeah, stop and frisk works, but it was just done wrong. Like, so wait a minute, you're a black local elected official, used to be a cop, and you're telling me that stop and frisk works and it's, and it's a good thing, but it was just implemented wrong. It was just, so for me, you know, I'm not convinced that voting on any level is going to bring about systemic change. When I think about voting, and I'll wrap it up after this, when I think about voting, I think about how was this country established, right? Because I think Kwa said something about going back to the foundation and, you know, a lot of these elected officials is just like pain on the wall. When we think about how this country was started, how the constitution was framed, the framers didn't vote. Right. And I looked it up in history. There was a parliament in Great Britain. Right. A lot of this was British territory, but they didn't vote to change it. They overthrew the government and they wrote that into the declaration. They said it is our duty to overthrow the government to literally they said throw off such mm. government. So voting is not necessarily going to bring about that systemic change that everybody's hoping and praying and pleading for and going to the, yeah, change we can believe in. I'm sorry, that's uh, Obama came and went, but he is not the Messiah. <laughs> you know, de Blasio, the mayor of New York City, came and went. He has a black wife, a black son. You know, many say his black son got him elected because he was trailing in the polls until his you know, son who had an Afro and is about my skin complexion, he went on TV and was like, vote for my dad. And everybody was like, wait, what? Your dad? He has a black son? Mm. It hasn't changed much. So I think we need to look at how this government was formed. It was formed through blood, through violence, through looting, through stealing. Right. When they condemn all the looting and the rioting and the well, what was the Boston Tea Party? 
that wasn't your tea. You didn't own that tea. You stole the identity of indigenous people, climbed mm. aboard a boat, so you're trespassing, that's breaking and entering, <laughs> and then you threw it into the water, into the Boston Harbor, so you stole it, essentially rendering millions of dollars, probably, millions of dollars worth of tea worthless, gone. So you stole and looted, not to mention the people you stole from a whole other continent to bring them over to a land that you swindled and stole. Manhattan is not a city. It is a people, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, this country was established through root looting, rioting, stealing, murder, killing, bloodshed, war. But they tell you to vote. Because they know how effective those methods are. And I believe in peace and nonviolence. But if we're going to be clear and we're going to talk about how you want to be changed, I don't think it's voting. And they know that, but they want to sort of suppress that change so they tell you to vote instead of stealing, looting, and rioting uh, and doing the things that will most likely bring about a revolution and a change. If you if you had a magic wand and you can fix voting tomorrow, you can wave that magic wand and you can fix voting tomorrow, what would you do? Overthrow the government. <laughs> <laughs> If I had my way, like I have my wand, everything's just going to stop and what we're voting for changes. So systemic change is not going to come from uh, what we're doing right now. That's probably what I would put. I would sneak that in. Like we are now voting for systemic change. So when everybody goes back to voting, all the votes are already in and systemic change is on either side. So it doesn't it doesn't matter who you pick, but this is what ultimately is going to come out of that. I would just rig it so that <laughs> we ultimately <laughs> get what it is that we want instead of having to wait so long and watch so much bloodshed and watch so many you know people here today gone tomorrow who are fighting for this thing i would rig it so that we get what we want immediately and all sit back and eat our favorite food <laughs> it's definitely a good idea to get rid of the electoral college but i don't think getting rid of the electoral college is gonna get rid of mm. you know like qua said the the system that we're trying to change i don't think you know just getting rid of this certain group of people is is going to change much treason is written into the declaration of independence right they're telling us they've given us a mandate that we have a duty to throw off this government when they start getting oppressive. The thing is, it was written for white guys, right? Mm -hmm. Let's be real. It was written for white males. So they're not really interested in hearing the problem from, you know, black people, whether black males, black females, black trans, black gender, they're not interested in hearing those issues because it wasn't written for them. Mm. So, you know, getting rid of just the electoral college is is not enough. I would love to know what do you guys learn from each other from just being in this in this discussion? What's at least one takeaway that you feel like um, or insight that you feel like you're going to walk away with? 
That's a good question. Um, I definitely am a sponge. Uh, a large part of that comes from just having a processing disorder. Like it just takes me longer to like really absorb stuff and like get in and reflect. So yeah, I'm not even, I, I definitely will have strong takeaways. Like I, I really appreciate everybody's perspective. Uh, I think I'll just like need more time just as like a function of my predetermined brain processes. But yeah, definitely, definitely a lot to like really like ruminate on and like challenge myself and see how like it interconnects with like my life and my perspective. Right on, Serge. Yeah, I mean that right there is is a takeaway to remember. You know that firstly, I, I'm not alone in this. I think ideology or struggle or battle or fight, and you know that there are other people who. Not to say that I need people to agree with me, but mm-hmm. that there are other people who you know hear what I'm saying and you know understand it and are processing it and to take away that, you know, we we have such a long way to go in this society where we are, you know, discriminating against race and gender identity and sexual mm-hmm. orientation. And you reminded me of another friend, um, Serge, that I have who always, you know, speaks out about ableism and things like that. You know, people that are discriminating against you know, others with, you know, any mental disabilities or anything, that, you know, as far as that's concerned. So I I think, you know, we have to take or I personally take away that, you know, we have a lot more in common than we do differences. Mm. And that, you know, it seems to me, again, I'm reminded that I'm not the only one that wants to see change. I'm not the only one that you know, is, as Serge put earlier, disillusioned with the system, disillusioned with the idea of voting. And so I think I want to take away, okay, we we hear that conversation, but how do we, you know, shift into, okay, we're disillusioned with it, now what do we do? Because there's so many, you know, nonprofit organizations that just, you know, tell you to vote, 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 and just shoving votes down our throats. And it's like, like, it's, it's, I I have voter fatigue and I haven't even voted yet. (laughs) (laughs) You know, they used to tell us vote or die. We voted in mass in 2008 and we're still dying. So what, like, what is the answer? How do we, you know, transition? How do we shift? this system how do we change this system how do we right. overthrow this government yes anthony in a peaceful way you know again i'm a nonviolent person i believe and if that's even possible i don't know if that's possible right i don't think it is <laughs> and that's what i'm like realizing the more and more i talk about it you know I, and the more and more i look at history I don't know if it is. I don't know because I look at, you know, the way this government operates in so many other countries. The CIA has had a hand in overthrowing democracies all over this world. I was saying to somebody the other day, it's like, if your freedom comes at the price of killing somebody over in the Middle East or South America, like, then that's not freedom. That's Mm. not freedom. 
So mm. I just I take away, you know, that I'm not alone, um, that we still have a lot of work to do as far as all of these issues are concerned. And, you know, just to I, I think that's where my faith kicks in. You know, Kwa said earlier, walk by faith and not by sight. So, you know, I just I do what I can and ultimately I, I, I pray. So you want to take us home? You know, what's what's something that you learned from this conversation? Uh, I learned a great deal from this conversation. I feel so charged. I feel so fed, mentally fed, emotionally fed, um, you know, from this conversation. Um, one, because I want to say this is the first time that I've ever been on a platform where you can discuss this without rage without anger, without pointing the finger, without discomfort amongst my peers. Um, and so I really want to say thank you to that. Uh, thank you for that, Anthony, because, you know, three things you don't discuss, religion, politics, and sports, right? You kind of <laughs> stick clear from those things, you know? Right. And um, I feel like today was a win-win. Like today was a win. You know, we actually got to discuss it. We got to get through it. We got to talk about some history that actually affected us all um, mm-hmm. and and talked about what we really know was supposed to happen moving forward. But I, I'm happy that, you know, we actually were able to face the reality that we know it's not going to happen. We know it's not going to happen. You know, right. we know what's supposed to happen, but we the reality is it's not going to um, And just overall, I think learning to be okay with what you know for sure. It's not going to happen. Learning how to coexist with that, you know, learning how to deal within yourself, because at the end of the day, we only have control over ourselves. You know, unless that wand comes into play, you know, we only we only have true control over us. You know, we can only do what we can. Um, And so uh, what I learned from both uh, from everyone here, what I want to say is. It's okay. It's okay to have a voice. It's okay to think differently. It's okay to be different. Like it's okay to be who you are. Um, right. Whether it makes a change or not, it is okay because with society and with social media, everyone feels like they need to be someone else. Mm -hmm. You know, they need to try to everything. Everyone else's goals. Everyone else's goals. You don't view yourself as a goal. But what we did here today is a goal for many people. Make sure to check out ABF Creative's newest podcast, The Invisible Vote. Subscribe and rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want more information on The Invisible Vote or even how you can participate in the podcast? Head over to InvisibleVote.com and make sure that you vote on November 3rd.